What is evidence? Evidence provides a why behind our plan of care. For the best outcomes for our patient. Elevate our practice to best standards. Giving the patient the most optimal care that we can. Is what guides us. There's been a lot of growth in our field. Things are progressing. It's different than what we saw 50 years ago. Welcome to Evidence Elevates, helping you integrate evidence to elevate the profession, your practice, and patient outcomes. A production of the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. This is part of a two-episode series. It's best to listen to the episodes in order to gain the best understanding of the material. Welcome back to the ANPT Evidence Elevates podcast. I'm Hallie Zelesnik, the co-chair of the Moving Forward Task Force, and I'm here again with Dr. Chad Cook, professor at Duke University, who we've been talking with about how we promote evidence in physical therapy practice. Last episode, we talked about some of the inherent challenges clinicians face in finding and selecting evidence, as well as how clinicians identify with particular approaches and the difficulties clinicians and ourselves included have had in trying to move forward with different approaches or different evidence. Today, we continue that discussion, and we also talk about de-implementation. So diving right in, here we go. One of the other things we've talked a lot about that I'm hoping we can talk a little bit about here is this idea of, you know, thinking about all of the different interventions that we might have, and that there's this area that could be what we would call the gray area. I've heard you reference as the gray area with interventions and how we approach our patients. And if you could tell us a little bit about what the gray area is and what's on those outskirts, what's outside of the gray area and how we figure that out. Yeah, thanks for bringing that up. Um, It's not my term, by the way. It's a term that was in a BMJ paper. And um, it basically said there's no such thing as a silver bullet for care, that most of our interventions have an effect. They tend to have a small to moderate effect. And we have very few interventions that have absolutely no effect. And we have very few interventions that absolutely work all the time. It's kind of in the middle. Everything's in the middle. So, and a lot of this is comes out of the psychological literature too. There are 40 different ways to approach somebody for a behavioral change. And none of the 40 ways are necessarily superior to another. They all have a small effect. So knowing that, I think it takes some of the strength out of an argument that this approach is the best approach to change. It helps everybody because we know that's just not true. The other thing that challenges us, I think, is that people respond differently to different interventions. And there's work out of the impact group that has shown this. And this is work out of the pharmaceutical industry. And this really opened my eyes because I thought you're going to see a similar response to these particular techniques. If you do a particular exercise program with a set of set level of dosage that is therapeutic and it's efficacious, then people will respond the same way. But the truth is it's not true. And so there's variation in the way that people respond even to medications. And there is definitely variations to the way people respond in treatments that are heavily influenced by contextual factors. So. What I think is important is let's identify those things that really have very low levels or no effect, and let's de-implement those, right? Because that's just taking time away from doing something that can be beneficial. And the second thing we need to do 
is how are we measuring this particular outcome? Because I, I'm a believer that, especially with something as complex as a neuropatient, the outcomes aren't just pen and paper tests. There are going to be other things too. So if your intervention is tagged well to that particular outcome and you can justify it, then you might see variation of care. But if your intervention can't tag to a particular outcome and you're doing a particular approach, and I don't, I'm not picking on NDT, I, I saw some of it when I went through um, my affiliation on that, but I never really understood what that was related to specific to an outcome. If you can tie it to a particular outcome, then I think there's there might be merit there. If you can't, it might be worth taking a step back and saying, what are we doing here? Uh, and then looking at your interventions that way. Yeah, that, that's a really great description. So what I'm hearing you say is that at least from your detailed knowledge of musculoskeletal care, that there's no silver bullet for different conditions and that there are probably interventions that are well supported or supported enough in practice that we should be doing them in practice. And then there are certainly things that really have little to no evidence or the evidence shows that they just do not make a change in patients related to those outcomes. And those are the things that we should be de-implementing. I should have just said that. It would have been <laughs> a lot quicker. And, uh, but yeah, that's summed up very well. And the, the thing is, is there, there isn't that, there aren't that many things that we do that have no effect whatsoever, but there are definitely things that we do that have a better effect than other things. And, and I think that's where we need to sit back and, you know, we put it on the board and on the big board and say, we, we should focus on these things. These things here maybe have, you know, they're good to go. Yeah, that reminds me of something that a uh, past APTA president, Paul Rocker, told me one time. I remember us talking a little bit about variability in care and decreasing unwarranted variation in care. And I think this fits in right there. And he described it to me as, you know, when you have a 16 lane highway and everybody's going crazy and trying to change lanes or get around is almost impossible. But what might be helpful is taking that 16 lane highway and just moving it to a four lane highway. We're not trying to say you have to do it this way, only this way, all the time this way, but you need to move from 16 lanes to four lanes. And I remember that really spoke to me in really trying to understand this concept of reducing unwarranted variability, but still allowing for clinical decision making. That's a good description, a really good description. The other piece that's a little different is we have our interventions that we interact with the patient with, but there are also process elements too. Things like how fast do we see that patient? How many times do we see them? Who else should we see them with? And in many cases, those influence the outcomes more than the interventions that we do. So sometimes focusing, focusing on process pieces are as important or more important than focusing on the intervention itself. Yeah, that's a good point too. We talked about the permanency of misinformation. What your thoughts are on that? There, once you get something into clinical practice, de-implementing that is extremely difficult. And even when information is out there that this is not something that is beneficial, you won't change the minds of those clinicians that have baked that into their pattern of care. And to me, the, the biz, biggest example of this 
is a particular test that's performed for a labral tear. And it's, it's often called the active compression test or the O'Brien's test. And it's only been around since about 1990, but a recent study said 77% of surgeons use this test to diagnose a labral tear. There have been 19 individual studies that have looked at the diagnostic accuracy of the O'Brien's test. Only one of the studies, the first one by O'Brien, found that it had any value at all. The subsequent 18 studies showed that it, it's a coin flip test. It doesn't give you any additional information. Everybody knows this. This information's been out for the last 15 years. It is still the most commonly used test for a labral tear. I think it's really hard to divorce ourselves from something that's part of our clinical practice. Yeah, I would agree with that. I want to go back a little bit to kind of talking a little bit about, you know, people's identity and the different techniques that they use and this kind of area of gray, which should be de-implemented or what should not. And talk a little bit about, you know, there are a lot of clinicians who I think believe that the more tools I have in my toolbox, the more effective I'm going to be because I truly have everything at my disposal to be able to interact with whatever might come my way. And I'm wondering if that's a, a good reason to kind of keep all of these techniques in our toolbox as, as a profession, to be able to really just address anything and everything that might come our way. You know, I think it's related to unwanted, unwanted variation. And so I'll give a, I'm gonna describe a couple of things. First of all, in diagnostic accuracy literature, we, off, we measure tests and we look at, if you add an additional test to this test, do you improve your accuracy? In every model we create, there's a point of diminishing returns at about five. So if you do more than five tests, you actually are less accurate. If you do 10 tests, you're way less accurate. And the reason is, is because the valuable tests are competing with invaluable and it conflicts in your decision-making process. So in that particular case, you're better off being more refined in fewer tools. There's an older study by Stavi and Strauss, and it was a post-learning acquisition curve. So after you train somebody, is it useful to give that person even more information and will their performance improve or will it decline? And what they found was those individuals that uh, graduated and were given a very tight framework of knowledge were fairly accurate initially, and their performance was pretty good. Over the next five years, those individuals tend to be bombarded with a lot of different things. Maybe they go to different CE courses and they learn a hundred different ways to move people or to, to work on their gait or whatever. And the, some of it's good, some of it's not, and the not competes with the good. And the performance tends to decline in that phase of their career. At about 10 years, clinicians start to get smart and they realize they start to see that really didn't help. And at that point, they start to discard those things that don't seem to help very much. And they do a much more refined approach and their performance improves. So I don't necessarily think a ton of tools in the toolbox are is always the right way to look at things. I think the right tools in the toolbox is probably a better way. 
And then kind of looping back to everything we've discussed this far, thinking about how you find those right tools and then how do you promote those right tools as an academy, as a profession, and then as a clinician, how do you seek out the tools that are right? And I think that truly is the conundrum and, and what our task force is really trying to um, get out there is what are those right tools and what are the tools we should be discarding at this point in time? So that, I think that's really helpful. I want to just switch gears a little bit and really talk a little bit more kind of about de-implementation and how we work to change people's beliefs. And I'm wondering if you've had any challenging, you, you talked about the course in New York where you came out and everybody was pretty much chasing you out of there. Mm -hmm. And what kind of experiences that you've had in really talking to people and trying to get them to open their minds to perhaps shifting their practice from a technique that you know as a scientist probably should be de-implemented and what that conversation kind of looks like or feels like. Well, I want to start my comment by saying I'm no expert in this. And and I think you have a stronger background than me in de-implementation, but I'll I'll tell you what I know and what my experience has been because we've incorporated a lot of these in our trials and We've also incorporated a lot of fidelity checklists in our trials too, which is a, a kind of a, a form of de-implementation. So de-implementation is a structured way of removing non-evidence-based treatments that lead to low-value care. So if we look at it that way as a definition, the first thing we need to do is define what is low-value care. And low-value care typically is where we're just not seeing any improvement whatsoever in that patient from that not just outcomes, but any of the other measures that we're looking at. So I think it's really important that we look, in, in some cases, our interventions are going to be to improve, uh, to shorten the length of stay. So that person gets out of the facility that they're in, and the interventions are going to be very different than in a situation where you're looking to improve function or gait or, or something of that nature. So I think we need to, you know, what is our, what's our measure for that? The de-implementation, as I mentioned, I learned from psychologists, and they have said it's behavioral. And it is not, some, you can't just sit down and have a, a conversation over coffee with someone because you're going to get tremendous pushback from that. For it to work, it has to be time-oriented. There has to be checkpoints built in. I, I think one of the, the first things you realize is it is behavioral. So I know I'm going to be trying to do a behavioral change and, and that will occur when the individual is ready. If they're not ready, me pressuring them isn't necessarily going to make them go faster. You have to give them tools to be able to improve their ability to de-implement. In these personal situations, in these behavioral situations, they either don't believe the evidence they're not motivated to follow the evidence. They don't have the skill set to follow that particular evidence. Those are things that you have to often upskill somebody with. So you give them resources, you give them immediate feedback. You can implement things such as a, a fidelity checklist or you know consistent reviews, but there has to be a two-way interaction. I don't think you're gonna get an immediate flick the switch and the person's doing exactly an evidence-based approach, but we can see incremental changes with that. 
and and sometimes a little improvement or just reducing the amount of um, of a lack of evidence is a win. Can I can I give you an example? Absolutely. So for some reason, uh, for our hospital system, I was put on um, in the imaging use of uh, imaging for low back pain for the university. And good Lord, there's so many clinical practice guidelines that say exactly what you should do with imaging. It, it is clear as a bell. And I think we did a review and it, they were about 12% compliant. And so they weren't following the guidelines whatsoever. And the insurance companies were like, come on, you know, we, we've got to improve this piece. So instead of saying we want to be 100% there, our goal was to be 25% compliant and then work in steps toward improving that level over time because we knew we were creating a behavioral change for that institution. That's a really great example. And I know also from personal experience and my work outside of the ANPT in my institution, a lot of times I know what the evidence says at a high level and people aren't ready. They're not ready to hear yep. it, to believe it, or to make a change. And so I've over the years found that I'm not successful when I try to say, this is how it is. What's wrong with everybody? We should be doing it this way. And I've learned, and it's taken me a long time because I'm such a strong believer that we should just do the best that we know how to do. And if we know, why wouldn't we just do it? That that's just not how people work on the grand scheme. And so I found it to be helpful to just try to meet people where they're at and ask them to change a little bit. Yeah. You know, so maybe it's not, you know, implementing a set of five outcome measures that are the absolute best outcome measures and always doing all of those and nothing else. Maybe it's saying, hey, of these measures, which one do you guys really feel like you could learn and start using and that you think would be helpful with your patients? And hoping they choose the strongest one. <laughs> and if they don't, then I'll, I'll accept what they're willing to do. And, and then, then yeah, and then providing ahead. feedback. Yeah, to them exactly. And, and celebrating the successes. Exactly. And, you know, put in a financial incentive for people to change. Exactly. And by all means, show that their change is related to a positive outcome. Absolutely. Because if it truly is, they're going to say, okay, I, you know, I think every clinician in their heart, 100% want their patients to get better. And if there is a way, if, if it, even if they change what they do to get a patient better, I think they'll adopt that, but we have to show them. And that we have a lot of systems I think in place that want you to change, but don't have the ability to show you the outcome of that change. So that's a big piece of it, I think. Yeah, and, and I would agree with exactly what you said. I think we can all agree that the reason we all chose the field of physical therapy is because we genuinely wanted to improve the quality of people's lives, period. And so I think finding that common ground and then trying to build from there, it allows you to build a relationship with the person sitting in front of you. And also I think just being open and respecting their view, you know, not just writing people off and really trying to listen to why it is that they believe what they believe and trying to go from there. I agree. With de-implementation, what's interesting, I think, is this idea of um, kind of substitution or providing someone alternative treatments to the things that you're trying to de-implement. 
And I know from some of your work, you've talked a lot about implementing clinical practice guidelines. You've looked at different processes for implementing clinical, clinical practice guidelines. You talked a little bit about um, kind of in research protocol drift. And I know you also published a paper recently about procedural drift. And I was wondering if you could define this idea of procedural drift in a clinical setting and talk to us a little bit about why that happens. Why do clinicians drift from doing what they know they should be doing or what they've learned they should be doing? So first of all, thanks for bringing that paper up. It's something that we think is actually really important. And it is something that we recognized while overseeing clinical trials that what we designed for the, in, the individuals to implement looked extremely different over time than what we incorporated. It was almost like the telephone game. The story gets changed throughout. The interventions ended up being very different. And the idea behind it is, is again, it comes from the psychological literature. It's one of the biggest reasons you don't see success in many psychological approaches because many of the clinicians who apply it think that their way is better than the way that has been shown to work in the research. So they modify it. They adjust it here. They adjust it there. They go back to previous behaviors or previous patterns, and they alter the procedures, and you, that's when you see the drift. And it's very, very common. And, you know, we talked about CE earlier, con continued education. This is where you a person says, oh, I'm going to teach you how to do um, cognitive behavioral therapy in this course. You come in, and then they say, oh, yeah, well, I know traditional CBT involves this, but I've modified it, and this is what we do. And that's, you know, that's a drift, basically. That's an early drift, but usually procedural drift occurs over time, and it is especially problematic when there are certain nuances of an intervention that lead to its effectiveness, and those are changed. So big problem. It's a problem in the clinic. It's certainly a problem in research. This is one of the reasons why clinical applicability is now a, a measurement tool that is used in a lot of scales, because it's why we have the tidy A checklist now is to go in and actually evaluate, was the procedure done the right way in a clinically meaningful way? Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a big issue. And if somebody's not heard of that, I would definitely recommend taking a look at that paper. You know, when I think about this idea of procedural drift and trying not to drift, I could see myself thinking, well, everything that's published it doesn't always apply to my patients. My patients are different. They have different needs. So is there a balance between patient-centered care and procedural drift? And what is that balance? And how do you really achieve it without really kind of going off the deep end and, and not getting to the outcomes that you need to be getting to with your patients? Well, I think it's hard and I don't have a, a perfect way of doing it. Um, but I did, I, in our paper, we did make some recommendations and the, it's interesting because they're similar to the recommendations that you would make for de-implementation. And those would be things like fidelity checklists or um, audits, uh, videotaping the encounter, and then and one-on-one -on -one immediate feedback. So, and I'm sure everybody has a bunch of extra folks walking around in a clinic to help out with that. But 
if there is a way that a person can actually see their performance and how it varies, that reduces the likelihood of that. Indeed, every patient's a little bit different. Most of the studies that have looked at procedural drift have talked about overcompensating for variations in patients. All right, you get an older person, you say, I tell you what, we don't need to do the same amount of dosage. You don't need to do the same amount of repetitions. We don't need to load you as much as we do this other person. And they overcompensate and it leads often to subtherapeutic doses. So they, we just have to really watch that. Is there an optimal amount of procedural drift or is there some amount of procedural drift that's acceptable when moving evidence to practice? There is. And we talk about that in the paper too, accepted procedural drift. And this is where the patient, they're just not improving or you're seeing something that isn't right. I mean, we're clinicians, we're not automatons, right? We'll, we'll adjust to that particular situation. But one of the keys is, is I think recognizing the tenets of what makes an intervention effective and staying true to those tenets. In many cases, I don't think we always do that as PTs. Yeah, and I know in that paper too, you gave three really great recommendations on how to reduce procedural drift. And I think we've already kind of talked about a lot of those. Um, one of them would be investing as a, as a system, if you're in a system of care, investing in high quality training. Um, you mentioned in the paper booster sessions yeah. for skills acquisition and skill training. I think that's a fantastic idea. Um, you talked about using individuals using different checklists. And I was wondering if you could just expand more on what a clinician might include in their own individual checklist if they were implementing, um, you know, a clinical practice guideline. I'll give an example of something you're familiar with. Okay. Um, we have fidelity checklists that we've put together for a lot of our different trials. I just submitted a grant on Friday and we incorporated a fidelity checklist. And essentially it has a checkbox, yes or no, did I X? So that X might be, did I discuss preferred interventions with the patient? So it's on shared decision-making. So, and you go through basically a checklist so that they are reminding themselves that these are the things that are supposed to do. It's not a whole lot different than a checklist that a pilot goes through on every flight. It's always the same thing. It forces it in surgeons too, by the way. It, are we on the right leg? You know, did I, is this the right person? Did anybody check the ID? You know, is everybody in the room in agreement? All of these checklist pieces, mundane, but it forces you to remember the key components that you're looking at. This is really helpful. And I even think I I give Con Ed every once in a while. I speak at conferences nationally or locally. And I'm half tempted after this conversation, reflecting now, to just develop a quick checklist that clinicians could use as a take-home based on what I'm teaching them. And I feel like maybe that would be valuable to provide that as a take-home point. If you've done nothing else today, I hope that after listening to this, you know, one hour or two hour session that you do these three things. Um, I like where you're going with that because, you know, the evidence suggests that if you go to one of these intensive continued education courses, that it really doesn't change practice. But booster sessions of courses does. So if there's some way to incorporate that, even if it's your own doing, where you're going back to the components of what you learn and checking on those, then I would say it's worth doing. 
Yeah, that's great. This has been an, un, an unbelievable conversation. I feel really lucky to have had this conversation. I wondered if we could try to summarize some of the things that we talked about, and I'm going to ask you some really difficult questions on how we really truly move forward. So thinking about some of the stuff we talked about early on, how can we as a profession work to get high quality evidence out in useful ways? I actually like the opportunities that social media has provided. I, I think there's a lot of garbage on social media, but I think the right people reporting the right things can shorten the amount of time to disseminate evidence and potentially implement that into practice. The two different things, but I think there's some potential there. I believe in our the academies or our sections. I think they are a lifeblood of filtering a lot of information into meaningful information. So I think getting information out through those, whether that's through clinical practice guidelines or through blast casts or you know, having a listserv and doing mail outs or, hey, you should look at this. I think those things are really crucial as well in, in getting information out there. You know, dissemination is tough. Um, we started, we, we saw a lot of conflicting information on manual therapy. So we actually created a center of excellence in manual and manipulative therapy. And it, its sole focus is to reduce misinformation and disinformation. It's affiliated with Duke University. It's vetted by people who aren't going to say these fringe nonsense stuff. You know, we're not manipulating babies. We're not, you know, we're not seeing spirit leopards coming from the mountains. It's evidence. It's what works within the literature. And I think having dedicated partners who really believe that, that don't have a vested interest in it, they're doing it for the right reasons. I think that'll improve dissemination moving forward too. That's really good. And, and I think I would agree too. I think that really paying attention to what's coming out of the APTA and the academies. That's certainly where I've gone as my growth in my company has grown to go beyond my area of expertise. I go to the Academy of Orthopedic Physical Therapy and Sports Physical Therapy all the time when I'm trying to find information. So That's do I. Relevant. Yeah. Yep. From a personal perspective, kind of reflecting on your own personal experiences, how do you think that we can just as individuals and individual clinicians really be open to changing our practice and perhaps trying to disconnect emotionally from those techniques that we believe so strongly that might prevent us from moving forward? Are there things that we can do as individuals um, to really try to help ourselves move forward or at least be open to move forward? I think for those that are trying to make the change, being patient is a really important thing. And recognizing behavioral changes don't are not immediate changes, right? Um, you mentioned I'm a, I'm a whiskey drinker. I know whiskey drinking is not healthy. I know it, uh, but it would require a behavioral change, and I'm not willing to do. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a classic example. Nonetheless, I think being patient and having faith that it's going to happen, because I really do think it's going to happen. The other piece and the thing that really moved me is. When I started seeing data to support the change, I, I said, I don't want to be the one left behind on that. I don't want to be the, the one person 
that's lagging and because I have not implemented X. I think that is another one. And the third piece is, is let's give opportunities for people who really do want to change, but maybe don't have that background and, and don't know how to change. And they don't have this, they have to upskill. Giving individuals legitimate opportunities with really valid, good courses. As my friend Chuck Thigpen says, learn how to block and tackle first, right? If you do the basics well that are associated with those good outcomes, offer those courses. I think you'll get people to go. That's really excellent advice. Chad, thanks again so much for your time. I think you bring a really great perspective and and your experience really over the years with evidence and practice has been really helpful. And I certainly, for one, have learned a ton from you in conversing today. So thank you again for helping us out. Thank you for having me on. And I wish you all the best success moving forward with this. That's a big and important initiative. Good luck. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Evidence Elevates podcast, a production of the Moving Forward Task Force in the Academy of Neurologic Physical Therapy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and that you share this podcast with a colleague today. Come back soon to listen to more episodes of Evidence Elevates. For more information, follow us on social media or find our website at neuropt.org. That's N-E-U-R-O-P-T dot O-R-G.